Greetings, juniors. It's Mr. Shovlin with you for your reading of Les Miserables, pages 190 to page 206, A Dark Case Needs a Silent Hound. Jean Valjean had, had immediately left the boulevard and began to run to thread the streets, making as many turns as he could, returning sometimes upon his track to make sure that he was not followed. The moon was full. Jean Valjean was not sorry for that. The moon, still near the horizon, cut large prisms of light and shade in the streets. Jean Valjean could glide along the houses and the walls on the dark side and observe the light side. He did not perhaps sufficiently realize that the obscure side escaped him. However, in all the deserted little streets in the neighborhood, neighborhood excuse me, of the Rue de Poliveau, he felt sure that no one was behind him. Jean Valjean described many very labyrinths in the Quartier Mohitard, which was already asleep as if it were still under the discipline of the Middle Age and the yoke of the curfew. He produced different combinations in wise strategy with the Rue Saint-Hier and the Rue Copieu and the Rue de Bateau Saint-Victor and the Rue de Petit Léamertes. As the eleven o'clock as eleven o'clock struck in the tower of Saint Etienne du Mont, he crossed the Rue de Poti in front of the bureau of the commissary of the police, which is at number fourteen. Some moments afterwards, the instinct of which we have already spoken made him turn his head. At this moment, he dis he saw distinctly, thanks to the comm commissary's lamp, <clears throat> which revealed them three men following him quite near passed one after another under the lamp on the dark side of the street. One of these men entered the passage leading, the commissaries, leading to the commissary's house. The one in advance appeared to him decidedly suspicious. Come, child, he said to Cosette, and he made haste to get out of the Rue de Pontieu. He made a circuit, went round the Arcade de Petrex, which was closed on account of the lateness of the hour, walked rapidly through the Rue de l'Epieu de Bois and the Rue de la Barthe, and plunged into the Rue de Postes. There was a square there where the Collet Rolin is, and from, the, from which branches off the Rue de Neuve Saint Genevieve. The moon lighted up this square brightly. Jean Valjean concealed himself in the doorway, calculating that if these men were still following, he could not fail to get a good view of them when they crossed this lighted space. In fact, three minutes had not elapsed when the, man, when the men appeared. There were four of them now. All were tall, dressed in long brown coats and with round hats and great clubs in their hands. They were not, not less fearfully forbidding by their size and their large fists than their stealthy tread in the darkness. One would have taken them for four specters in the citizen's dress. They stopped in the center of the square and formed a group like people consulting. They appeared undecided. The man who seemed to be the leader turned and energetically pointed in the direction in which Jean Valjean was. One of the others seemed to insist with some obstinacy on the contrary direction. At the instant that the leader turned, the moon shone full in his face. Jean Valjean recognized Javert perfectly. Uncertainty was at an end for Jean Valjean. Happily, it still continued with these men. He took advantage of their hesitation. It was time lost for them and gained for him. He came out of the doorway in which 
he was concealed, and made his way into the Rue de Postes toward the region of the Jardin des Plantes. Cosette began to be tired. He took her in his arms and carried her. There was nobody in the streets, and the lamps had not been lighted on account of the moon. He doubled his pace. He passed through the Rue de la Chef, the Clef, excuse me, then by the Fontaine de Saint-Victor, and along the gardens of the Jardin des Plantes by the lower streets, and reached the quay. There he looked around. The quay was deserted. The streets were deserted. Nobody behind him. He took a breath. He arrived at the bridge of Asterlitz. A large cart was passing the sign at the same time, and like him was going toward the right bank. This could be made of use. He could go the whole length of the bridge in the shade of this cart. From the point where he was, he could see the whole length of the bridge de Asterlitz. Four shadows at that moment entered upon the bridge. These shadows were coming from the Jardin des Plantes toward the right bank. Right bank excuse me. The four shadows were the four men. Jean Valjean felt a shudder like that of a deer when he sees the hounds upon his track. One hope was le left him. By plunging into the little street before him, he could succeed in reaching the woodyards, the marshes, the streets, the open grounds, he the fields. He could escape. It seemed to him that he might trust himself to this silent little street. He entered it. Some 300 paces on, he reached a point where the street forked. It divided into two streets, the one turning off obliquely to the left, the other to the right. Jean Valjean had before him two branches of a Y. Which should he choose? He did not hesitate, but took the right. Why? Because the left branch led to the Faubourg, that is to say, toward the inhabited region, and the right branch toward the country, that is, toward the uninhabited region. He turned from time to time and looked back. He took care to keep always on the dark side of the street. The street was straight behind him. The two or th three first times he turned, he saw nothing. The silence was complete. And then he kept on his way, somewhat reassured. Suddenly, on turning again, he thought he saw in the portion of the street through which he had just passed, far in obscurity, something which stirred. He plunged forward rather than walked, hoping to find some side street by which to escape and once more to elude his pursuers. He came to a wall. This wall, however, did not prevent him from going further. It was a wall forming the side of a cross alley in which the street Jean Valjean was then in came to an end. Here he must decide, should he take the left, excuse me, should he take the right or the left? He looked to the right. The alley ran out to a space between some buildings that were mere sheds or barns, then terminately abrupt, terminated abruptly. The end of this blind alley was plain to be seen, a great white wall. He looked to the left, the alley on this side, on this side was open, and about 200 paces further on ran into a street of which it was an affluent. In this direction lay safety. The instant Jean Valjean decided to turn left to try to reach the street which he saw at the end of the alley, he perceived at the corner of the alley and the street toward which he was just about going a sort of black motionless statue. It was a man who had just been posted there, evidently who was waiting for him, guarding the passage. Jean Valjean was startled. Such was the quarter of the last century. The Petit Picpus had what we just called the Y of streets, formed by the Rue de Chemin Vert and Saint-Antoine, dividing up, dividing into two branches and taking on the left the name Petit de Rue Picpus, and on the right the name of the Rue Polonceau. 
The two branches of the Y were joined at the top as by a bar. This bar was called the Rue de Rue Droitmore. The Rue Polancu ended there. The <clears throat> Petite Rue Picpus passed beyond, rising toward the Marche Lenore. He who, coming from the sign, reached the extremity of the Rue Polancu, had on his left the Droitmore turning sharply at a right angle, before him the side wall of that street, and on his right a truncated prolongation of the Rue Droitmore without thoroughfare, called the cul-de-sac general. Jean Valjean was in this place. As we have said, on perceiving the black form standing sentry at the corner of the Rue Droitmore and Petite Rue Picpus, he was startled. There was no doubt he watched. He was watched by this shadow. What should he do? There was now no time to turn back. What he had seen moving in the obscurity some distance behind him the moment before was undoubtedly Javert and his squad. Javert probably had already reached the commandment. Excuse me. The commencement of the street on which Jean Valjean was at the end. Javert, to all appearances, was acquainted with this little trap and had taken his precautions by sending one of his men to guard the exit. These conjectures, so like certainties, whirled about wildly, wildly in Jean Valjean's troubled brain. As a handful of dust flies from flies before a sudden blast, he scrutinized the cul-de-sac general, and there were high walls. He scrutinized the petite rue Picpus. There was a sentinel. He saw the dark form repeated in black upon the white pavement, flooded with the moonlight. To advance was to fall upon that man. To go back was to throw himself into Javert's hands. Jean Valjean felt as if caught by, by a chain that was slowly winding up. He looked up into the sky in despair. At this moment, a muffled and regular sound began to make itself heard at some distance. Jean Valjean ventured to thrust his head a little around the corner of the street. Seven or eight soldiers formed in platoon had just turned into the Rue Polinsieu. He saw the gleam of their bayonets. They were coming toward him. The soldiers whose head he distinguished the tall form of Javert advanced slowly and with precaution. They stopped frequently. It was plain that they were exploring all the recesses of the walls and all the entrances of the doors and alleys. It was, and here conjecture could not be deceived, some patrol which Javert had met and which he had put in requisition. Javert's two assistants marched in the ranks. At the rate, excuse me, at the rate at which they were marching, the stops they were making, it would take them about a quarter of an hour to arrive at the spot where Jean Valjean was. It was a frightful moment. A few minutes separated Jean Valjean from that awful precipice which was opening before him for the third time. And the galleys now were no longer simply the galleys. They were cosette lost forever. That is to say, a life in death. There was now only one thing possible. Jean Valjean had this peculiarity that he might be said to carry two knapsacks. In one, he had the thoughts of a saint, in the other, the formidable talents of the con of a convict. He helped himself from one or the other as the occasion required. Among other resources, thanks to his numerous escapes from the galleys of Toulon, he had, it will be remembered, become a master of the incredible art of raising himself in the right angle of a wall, if need be, to the height of a fixed story, an art without ladders or props, by mere muscular strength, supporting himself by the back of his neck and his shoulders, his hips, and his knees, hardly making use of the few projections 
of the stone, which rendered so terrible and so celebrated the corner of the yard from the Consignardery of Paris, by which some 20 years ago the convict Batmole made his escape. Jean Valjean murmured with his eyes, excuse me, measured with his eyes the wall above which he saw a lime tree. It was about 18 feet high. The wall was capped by a flat stone without any projection. The difficulty was Cosette. Cosette did not know how to scale a wall. Abandon her? Jean Valjean did not think of it. To carry her was impossible. The whole strength of a man is necessary to accomplish these strange ascents. The least burden would make him lose the center of gravity and he would fall. He needed a cord. Jean Valjean had none. Where could he find a cord at midnight in the Rue Polesieu? Truly, at that instant, if Jean Valjean had had a kingdom, he would have given it for a rope. All extreme situations have their flashes, which sometimes make us blind, sometimes illuminate us. The despairing gaze of Jean Valjean encountered the lamppost in the cul-de-sac general. At this epoch, there were no gaslights in the street of, streets of Paris. At nightfall, they, were lighted th they lighted the street lamps, which were placed at intervals and were raised and lowered by means of a rope traversing the street from end to end, running through the grooves of posts. The reel on which this rope was wound was enclosed below the lantern in a little iron box, the key of which was kept by the lamplighter, and the rope itself was protected by a casing of metal. Jean Valjean, with the energy of a final struggle, crossed the street in a bound, entered the cul-de-sac, sprang the bolt from the little box and with the point of his knife, and an instant after was back at the side of Cosette. He had a rope. The desperate inventors of expedience in their struggles with fatality move electric electrically in case of need. We have explained that the street lamps had not been lighted that night. The lamp in the cul-de-sac general was then, as a matter of course, extinguished like the rest, and one might pass by without even noticing that it was not in its place. Meanwhile, the hour, the place, the darkness, the preoccupation of Jean Valjean, his singular, singular actions, his going to and fro, all this began to disturb Cosette. Any other child would have uttered long, loud cries long before. She contented herself with pulling Jean Valjean by the skirt of his coat. The sound of the approaching patrol was constantly becoming more and more distinct. Father, said she in a whisper, I am afraid. Who is it that is coming? Hush, answered the unhappy man. It is the Thenardier. Cosette shuddered. He added, Don't say a word. I'll take care of her. If you cry, if you make any noise, the Thenardier will hear you. She is coming to catch you. Then without any haste, without doing much anything a second time, with a firm and rapid decision, so much the more remarkable at such a moment when the patrol in Javert might come upon him at any instant, he took off his cravat, passed it around Cosette's body under the arms, taking care that it should not hurt the child, attached his cravat to an end of the rope by means of the knot, which seamen call a swallow knot, and took the other end of the rope in his teeth, took out his shoes and stockings, and threw them over the wall, and began to raise himself in the angle of the wall and the gable with as much solidity and certainty as if he had the rounds of a ladder under his heels and his elbows. Half a minute had not passed before he was on his knees on the wall. Cosette watched him, stupefied without saying a word. Jean Valjean's charge in the name of the Thenardiers had made her dumb.
All at once, she heard Jean Valjean's voice calling her in a low whisper. Put your back against the wall. She obeyed. Don't speak and don't be afraid, added Jean Valjean. She felt herself lifted from the ground. Before she had time to think, she was where she was. She was at the top of the wall. Jean Valjean seized her and put her on his back, took her two little hands in his left hand, excuse me, took her two little hands in his left hand, lay down flat, and crawled along the top of the wall. He had supposed there was a building there, the roof of which sloped very nearly to the ground with a gentle inclination. A fortunate circumstance, for the wall was much higher on this side than on the street. Jean Valjean saw the ground beneath him at a great depth. He had just reached the inclined plane of the roof and had not yet left the crest of the wall when a violent uproar proclaimed the arrival of the patrol. He heard the thundering voice of Javert. Search the cul-de-sac. The Rue Droitmour is guarded, and the, the Petit Rue Picpus also. I'll answer for it if he is in the cul-de-sac. The soldiers rushed into the cul-de-sac general. Jean Valjean slid down the roof, keeping hold of Cosette, reached the lime tree, and jumped to the ground. Whether from terror or from courage, Cosette had not uttered a whisper. Her hands were a little scraped. Jean Valjean found himself in a sort of garden, a very large, very large and of singular appearance, one of those gloomy gardens which seem made to be seen in the winter and at night. This garden was oblong with a row of large poplars at the further end, some tall forest trees in the corners, and a clear space in the center where stood a very large isolated tree, then a few fruit trees contorted and shaggy like big bushes, some vegetable beds, a melon patch, the glass covers of which shone in the moonlight in an old well. There were here and there stone benches, which seemed black with moss. The walks were bordered with sorry little shrubs, perfectly straight. The grass covered half of them, and the green moss covered the rest. Nothing can be imagined more wild and more solitary than this garden. There was no one there, which was very natural on account of the hour, but it did not seem as if the place were made for anybody to walk in, even in broad noon. Jean Valjean's first care had been to find his shoes and put them on. Then he entered the shed with Cosette. A man trying to escape never thinks himself sufficiently concealed. The child, thinking constantly of the Thenardiers, shared his instinct and cowered down as closely as she could. Cosette trembled and pressed closely to his side. They heard the tumultuous clamor of the patrol ransacking the cul-de-sac in the street, the clatter of their muskets against the stones, the calls of Javert to the watchman he had stationed, and the imprecations mingled with words which they could not distinguish. At the end of a quarter of an hour, it seemed as though this stormy rumbling began to recede. Jean Valjean did not breathe. He had placed his hand upon Cosette's, gently upon Cosette's mouth. But the solitude about him was so strangely calm that that frightful din, so furious and so near, did not even cast over it a shadow of disturbance. It seemed as if these walls were built were built of the death stones spoken of in the scriptures. Suddenly, in the midst of this deep calm, a new sound arose, a celestial, divine, ineffable sound as ravishing as the other was horrible. It was a hymn which came forth from the darkness, a bewildering mingling of prayer and harmony in the obscure and fearful silence of the night. Voices of women, but voices 
with the pure accents of virgins, the artless accents of children, those voices which are not of earth and which resemble those that the newborn still hear, and the dying hear already. This song came from the gloomy building which overlooked the garden. At the moment when the uproar of the demons receded, one would have said it was the choir of angels approaching in the darkness. Cosette and Jean Valjean fell on their knees. They knew not what it was, and they knew not where they were. But they both felt, the man and the child, the penitent and the innocent, that they ought to be on their knees. These voices had this strange effect. They did not prevent the building from appearing deserted. It was like a supernatural song in an uninhabited dwelling. While these voices were singing, Jean Valjean was entirely absorbed in them. He no longer saw the night. He saw a blue sky. He seemed to feel the spreading of these wings, which we all have within us. The chant ceased. Perhaps it had lasted a long time. Jean Valjean could not have told. Hours of ecstasy are never more than a moment. All had again relapsed into silence. There was nothing more in the street, nothing more in the garden. That which threatened, that which reassured, all had vanished. The wind rattled the dry grass on top of the wall, which made a low, soft, and mournful noise. The child had laid her head upon a stone and gone to sleep. He sat down near her and looked at her. Little by little, as he beheld her, he grew calm and regained possession of his clearness of mind. He plainly perceived this truth, the basis of his life, henceforth, so that so long as she should be alive, so long as he should have her with him, he should need nothing except for her, and fear nothing save on her account. He did not even realize that he was cold, having taken off his coat to cover her. Meanwhile, through the excuse me, through the reverie into which he had fallen, he had heard for some time a singular noise. It sounded like a little bell that someone was shaking. This noise was in the garden. It was heard distinctly, though feebly. It resembled the dimly heard tinkling, tinkling of cowbells in pastures at night. This voice, this noise, excuse me, made Jean Valjean turn. He looked and saw that there was someone in the garden. Someone, something which resembled a man was walking among the glass cases of the melon patch, rising up, stooping down, stopping with a regular motion, as if he were drawing or stretching something upon the ground. This thing appeared to limp. Jean Valjean shuddered. He said to himself that perhaps Javert and his spies had not gone away, and that they had doubtless left somebody to watch in the street, that if this man should discover him in the garden, he should cry thief and would deliver him up. He took the sleeping Cosette gently in his arms and carried her into the farthest corner of the shed behind a heap of old furniture that was out of use. Cosette did not stir. From there, he watched the strange motions, strange motions of the man in the melon patch. It seemed very singular, but by the sound of the bell, but the sound of the bell followed every movement of the man. When the man approached, the sound approached. When he moved away, the sound moved away. If he made some sudden motion, a trill accompanied the motion, and when he when he stopped, the noise ceased. It seemed evident that the bell was fastened to this man. But then, what could could that mean? What was this man to whom a bell was hung as to a ram or a cow? While he was resolving, revolving these questions, he touched Cosette's hands. They were icy. Oh, God, said he. He called her to her in a low voice. Cosette, she did not open her eyes. He shook her smartly. She did not wake. Could she be dead, said he. 
He sprang up, shuddering from head to foot. Cosette was pallid. She had fallen prostrate on the ground at his feet, making no sound. He listened for her breathing. She was breathing, but with a respiration that appeared feeble and about to stop. How should he get her warm again? How rouse her? All else was banished from his thoughts. He rushed desperately out of the room. It was absolutely necessary that in less than a quarter of an hour, Cosette should be in a bed and before a fire. He went straight to the man whom he saw in the garden. He had taken in his hand the roll of money, which was in his vest pocket. This man had his head down and did not see him coming. With a few strides, Jean Valjean was at his side. Jean Valjean approached him, exclaiming, A hundred francs! The man started and raised his eyes. A hundred francs for you, continued Jean Valjean, as you will give me refuge tonight. The moon shone full in Jean Valjean's bewildered face. What? Is it you, Father Madeline? said the man. This name, thus pronounced at this dark hour, in this unknown place by this unknown man, made Jean Valjean start back. He was ready for anything but that. The speaker was an old man, bent and lame, dressed up much like a peasant, who had on his left knee a leather kneecap from which hung a bell. His face was in the shade and could not be distinguished. Meanwhile, the good man had taken off his cap and was exclaiming tremulously, Ah, oh my God! How did you come here, Father Madeline? How did you get in? Oh, Lord, did you fall from the sky? Who are you, and what is this house? asked Jean Valjean. Oh, indeed, that is good now, exclaimed the old man. I am the one you got the place for here, and this house is the one you got me the place in. What? You don't remember me? No, said Jean Valjean. And how does it happen that you know me? You saved my life, said the man. He turned. A ray of the moon lighted up his side face, and Jean Valjean recognized old Fauquelevin. Ah, said Jean Valjean, it is you. I remember, yes, I remember you. That is very fortunate, said the old man in a reproachful tone. And what are you doing here? Added Jean Valjean. Oh, I am covering my melons. Old Fauquelevent had in his hand, indeed at that moment, at the moment when Jean Valjean accosted him, the end of a piece of awning, which he was stretching over the melon patch. He had already spread out several in this way during the hour he had been in the garden. It was this work which made him go through the peculiar motions observed by Jean Valjean from the set. He continued, I said to myself, the moon is bright and there is going to be a frost. Suppose I put their jackets on my melons. And he, looking at Jean Valjean with a loud laugh, you would have done well to do as much for yourself. But how did you come here? Jean Valjean, finding that he wasn't known by this man, at least under the name of Madeline, went no further with his precautions. He multiplied questions. Oddly enough, their parts seemed reversed. He, it was he, the intruder, who put the questions. And what is this bell you have on your knee? That, answered Fauquelevent, is that so they may keep away from me. Keep away from you? Old Fauquelevent winked in an indescribable manner. Ah, bless me, there's nothing but women in this house, plenty of young girls. It seems that I am dangerous to meet. The bell warns them. When I have come, they go away. What is this house? Well, you you know very well. No, I don't. Why, you got this place 
here as a gardener. Got me this place here as a gardener, excuse me. Answer me as if I didn't know. Well, it is the convent of Petit Picpus then. John Lejean remembered. Chance, that is to say, Providence, had thrown him precisely into this convent of the Courtier Saint Anton, to which old Fauclevent, crippled from his fall by the cart, had been admitted upon his recommendation two years before. He repeated as if he were talking to himself, the convent of the Petit Picpus. But now really, resumed Fauclevent, how the deuce did you manage to get in, Father Madeline? It is no use for you to be a saint. You are a man, and no men come in here. But you are here. There is none but me. But resumed Jean Valjean, I must stay here. Oh, my God, exclaimed Fauclevent. Jean Valjean approached the man and said to him in a grave voice, Father Fauclevent, I saved your life. I was first to remember it, said Fauclevent. Well, you can do for me what I once did for you. Fauclevent grasped in his old wrinkled and trembling hands the rough hands of Jean Valjean, and it was like sec it was some seconds before he could speak. At last he exclaimed, Oh, that would be a blessing of God if I could do something for you in return for that. I save your life, Monsieur Madeline. The old man is at your disposal. A wonderful joy, as it were, transfigured the old gardener. A radiance seemed to shine forth from his face. What do you want me to do? He added. I will explain. You have a room? I have a solitary fancy over there behind the ruins of the old convict, convent in a corner that no one ever sees. There are three rooms. The fancy was, in fact, so well concealed behind the ruins and so well arranged that no one could see it, that Jean Valjean had not seen it. Good, said Jean Valjean. Now I ask of you two things. What are they, Father Monsieur Madeline? First, that you will tell not tell anybody what you know about me. Second, that you will not attempt to learn anything more. As you please, I know that you can do nothing dishonorable, and that you have always been a man of God, and then, besides, it was you that put me here. It is your place. I am yours. Very well, but come with me. We will go for the child. Ah, for the child? There is a child? But he said no more, but followed Jean Valjean as a dog follows his master. In a half an hour, Cosette again became rosy before a good fire, and was asleep in the gardener's bed. Jean Valjean had put him put on his cravat and coat. His hat, which he had thrown over the wall, had been found and brought in. While Jean Valjean was putting on his coat, Father Monsieur Fauclevent had taken off his kneecap with the bell attached, which now hanging on the, on the nail near his cutter decorated the wall. The two men were warming themselves with their elbows on a table on which Fauclevent had set a piece of cheese, some brown bread, a bottle of wine, and two glasses. The old man, old man said to Jean Valjean, putting his hand on his knee, Ah, Father Madeleine, you didn't know me at first. You save people's lives and then forget them. Oh, that's bad. They remember you. You are ungrateful.